Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Good morning. It's, it's wonderful to see so many of you here that I know and, and love so much. It, means a great deal to me. In fact, <clears throat> I'm looking out and seeing right in front uh, the missionary who was the main one to teach me the gospel, and he's still alive. <laughs> it's good to see you, Lynn. I'm sorry that President Lee isn't here. Um, he, he's so thoughtful. He called yesterday to express his disappointment, and we had chatted about it, and he knew I was really excited to have him come. And I think he wouldn't mind if, if I started with a story that I had planned to. Uh, he has such a wonderful sense of humor, and uh, I'll just change one of the main characters. I selected a story that uh, would be fitting for a devotional because it has a religious theme. Um, these two fellows died and went to heaven. When they got to the pearly gates, there was St. Peter there to greet, to greet them. And he said, come with me, I'm going to show you where you'll live. And so one, he took to this little hut, just a little tiny place, and the other he took to this gorgeous mansion. I mean, it was beautiful, gold trim, the works. And an onlooker said, um, St. Peter, I don't want to tell you your business, but uh, wasn't that the Pope you took over to that hut? And wasn't that Provost Bruce Hafen you took to that mansion? And St. Peter said, uh, uh-huh. You can tell what he's been drinking. Uh-huh. And so he said, but don't fret. Um, we can tell who the Pepsi generation is here. Um, he said, don't fret. Everything's just fine. Everything's according to the way it should be. He says, look, we have lots of pope here, popes here, but this is our very first lawyer. <laughs> now I'm going to start on these. Tel- I've never used this teleprompter before. It's going to be fun. I think somebody from the University of Utah must have used it recently because there's still some whiteout on the screen. Um, <laughs> Isn't it pretty silly to think that what my story would depict the way of Heavenly Father? But as as is evident in the world today, we mortals can be easily fooled. Seeking identity from the world brings trouble. It's a mirage. Seeking identity from the Lord brings truth. It is real. I am grateful to be a part of the BYU community, a university in which the whole of what we do can be grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love President Benson and testify that he is a living prophet of God. It is marvelous to have the privilege of being associated with a university that is guided by living prophets. In fact, it was in my, one of my 71 drafts of this talk um, to say to you, what a, in relation to what uh, Provost Hafen has said in the introduction, what a thrill it is for me to be here. Because in other universities, I have been able to teach these similar principles, but never identify the source. 
And so to be free to do that here, it's just as if the lid's been taken off. And it is a marvelous experience and opportunity. Well, today I pray that the Spirit will be with us in abundance. I'm thankful for the assistance that I have received in preparing this talk. And I'm thankful for loving friends that are here today, and I'm grateful for your prayers. In January 1992, President Rex E. Lee delivered his winter devotional address, which he entitled, Things That Change and Things That Don't. I was elated to hear this distinguished university president testify of the reality of absolute truth. In his talk, he declared, Throughout your lives, you will come across some people who will assure you with great solemnity that there is no such thing as an absolute. In these people's view, everything is relative. Most of these people are very sincere, and all of them are dead wrong. I enthusiastically add my testimony of absolutes to that of President Lee. Absolute truth is that which is eternal. Its source is beyond this world. It comes to us from God. We can respond to that truth. We can embrace it and be devoted to it, but it is not of our own making. The main thrust of my talk today is basing self-acceptance on absolute, eternal values as opposed to the usual practice of basing self-acceptance on competence, achievements, appearance, or, in other words, the things of the world. Incorporating these eternal verities into our lives is essential to our progress and to living the first and second great commandments. Unless we base our acceptance of self and others on these absolute truths, we are not able to see ourselves as the Lord sees us, as we really are. In the Book of Mormon, Jacob chastised his well-to-do brethren for persecuting those who were of lesser means because of the pride in their hearts. He admonished them for thinking they were better than others because of their costliness of the apparel. I have to laugh. Just before this, I put on this suit out in the parking lot. I don't usually dress in this kind of apparel. Um, And because of their advantaged position and riches, and Jacob said, Do ye not suppose that such things are abominable unto him who created all flesh? And the one being is as precious in his sight as the other. And all flesh is of the dust, and for the selfsame end hath he created them, that they should keep his commandments and glorify him forever. And he inviteth all to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. I know that every person is precious in the sight of God. At the conclusion of an address to religious educators, which he gave last February, Elder Oaks spoke of the importance of knowing how God sees us. I hope you will help your students feel their relationship to God, feel His concern for them, and feel His love for them. Why do I feel so strongly that it is imperative that we know the Savior's love for us and have reverence for our own lives? It is such a waste of a beautiful life when any person feels that he or she is no good. I know. I have lived on both sides of this issue. For over half of my life, I did not like who I was. It was dark, 
lonely. On the surface, everything seemed great, but inwardly I feared that if anyone really knew me, they wouldn't like me. The confusing thing to me was, with all the accomplishments I was racking up, I still did not have a good sense of self. Heavenly Father tells me in my patriarchal blessing that he loves me. I read those words for ten years, and they never sank in. By the time I was 32, I was desperate to know if I was loved. Are you trying to figure out how old I am? Because I want you to listen to my words. I'm 51. This disparity between the outside me and the inside me came to be more than I could stand. And in the most earnest prayer, I pled with Heavenly Father to know if He loved me. The answer was one I could not doubt or deny, and luckily it was affirmative. Then I couldn't reconcile this knowledge of truly being loved with how I felt about myself. If I don't love myself, I'm telling Father he is wrong or that he has bad taste. It took me nearly six months of prayer, repenting, and pretending that I loved myself before I could come to genuinely be glad to to be me, and then my whole life changed. What an incredible difference to be able to honestly thank the Lord for who you are, to be grateful and happy to be you instead of disliking yourself or feeling pressure to be more than you are. Because of the world we live in today, I think everyone has to overcome the influences that seem to tear us down or falsely build us up. I can tell you with all the feeling I can muster that real self-acceptance does not come through worldly accomplishments or even acceptance by others. Of course, these things feel good, and they can be exciting and positive aspects of life. But thinking that acceptance comes from succeeding in the world is a very effective ploy of the adversary. Love for self, a deep, abiding peace, and knowing who you really are, come from only one source, and that is God. Knowing you are loved and knowing true peace are invaluable Anything else in the world pales by comparison. Knowing that Heavenly Father truly loves us and trusting that it is vital to Heavenly Father that we come home to Him are some of the greatest motivators that we can have to give us the genuine desire to be true to Him. With reverence for self based on God's love, we will reject the temptations that otherwise would draw us to the pride of the world. We would love nothing more than God. You can imagine how excited I was to hear the words of President Benson in his classic address, Beware of Pride. The proud depend upon the world to tell them whether they have value or not. Their self-esteem is determined by where they are judged to be on the ladders of worldly success. Then President Benson described how we come to have a valid, true sense of self. If we love God, do His will, and fear His judgment more than men's, we will have self-esteem. Acceptance for self which is generated by the world is fake. By virtue of its very nature, other-directed self-esteem will constantly vacillate, vacillate, alternating highs and lows. It has to because it's not possible to always succeed. 
Therefore, if acceptance is based on success, then lack of success must mean lack of acceptance. How could that be right? Then instead of learning from our mistakes, every difficulty would cause us to think less of ourselves. One can never get enough of what one does not need, said Mary Ellen Edmonds. Worldly self-esteem is never satisfied. You achieve or acquire more and more, but still feel empty inside. Without charity, the pure love of Christ, we are nothing. Acceptance of self based on God's love is real. This true reverence for self is deep, filled with gratitude and peace, and is ever-present, even in the face of life's most difficult trials. As each person is as precious in his sight as the other, each one has ready access to honest, lasting, real self-acceptance. A very practical blessing of the restored gospel is that we know the absolute truths that provide the foundation for having a good sense of self. Once acceptance is based on this sure, absolute foundation, then you will be free to aspire, achieve, excel. Then you will be giving of yourself out of gratitude to the Lord, to serve the Lord, to magnify your talents, to do His work. You will not be out there on your own agenda, killing yourself to be somebody, to measure up to someone else's expectations, obsessed with the need to be accepted. Your whole motive will arise from your love for Him, your trust in His love for you, your desire to do His will. So what is the formula? What are the absolutes, the things that don't change, that are the basis for a genuine, real, stable, secure self? Number one, we are literal spirit children of heavenly parents. In the, during the presidency of Joseph Fielding Smith, he said, As offspring of celestial parentage, all men and women are in the similitude of the universal father and mother and are literally the sons and daughters of deity. Elder Packer testified in this recent conference, No greater ideal has been revealed than the supernal truth that we are children of God, and we differ by virtue of our creation from all other living things. No idea has been more destructive of happiness. No philosophy has produced more sorrow, more heartbreak, and mischief. No idea has done more to destroy the family than the idea that we are not the offspring of God. Obviously, some people do not have a clue as to their divine nature, while others seem to have a glimpse of this noble birthright. How would each of our lives be different if our divine nature were the primary factor on which we based our identity? When asked who you are, what comes to mind? One friend told me, he said, gee, lately I've had real problems. Sometimes I think I'm a wigwam, and sometimes I think I'm a teepee. I said, oh, you do have problems. I said, I know, you're too tense. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Absolute law number two. We are soul, body, and spirit, and every soul will be resurrected. Can you tell this is one of my favorites? Uh, why is this one important for us to include um, as we strive to see ourselves as the Lord sees us? Well, according to self-esteem studies, 
in the way, the way the world views us, the number one factor in determining whether we have self-esteem or not is appearance. A student in our Philosophy of Body, Mind, Spirit course uh, wrote of how angry she was upon realizing she had been victimized into thinking she was not attractive. Dieting, eating disorders, disparaging attitudes and behaviors are rampant as we are driven toward an obsession with the outward appearance. And you know the scripture, the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Lori concluded her final paper with these thoughts. I believe that because we are refusing to take responsibility for our bodies, falsifying our outside image, which cannot but serve to canker our souls, we are ultimately forfeiting the right to become like God. We must make from our physical selves a being fit to be a God and never, never despise that which sets us apart from the hosts of Satan, our bodies, however flawed, however imperfect. If we reverence our body and spirit, as does the Lord, we cannot be false to ourselves. The face that we fashion will be the one that God has given. And so I would ask, have you received his image in your countenance? Why would we not have reverence for our body as a glorious aspect of our divine self? The Father has a body of flesh and bones, the Son also. The spirit and body are the soul of man. By nature, we are more like God now than we were in the preexistence. The body is a primary blessing in our process of moving forward. Immune research of the past several decades gives astounding proof as, as to the totally interactive functioning of the emotions, mind, and body. We are soul by def definition, and we function and live as soul. If we think of our body as negative, something the spirit needs to dominate, or something we would rather do without, we put ourselves in a state of contention, and we know that contention is of the devil and not of the Lord. The Lord said, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. I think that sentiment is wonderfully applicable to our own soul as well as to our relation with others. As we have reverence for our bodies, our whole soul, we will be motivated to completely value ourselves and be gentle with ourselves. Are you grateful for your body as well as your spirit? Mickey Trockle told a story in class that illustrated the victimization of letting another person define us. A naturalist who saw an eagle in a chicken coop questioned the farmer as to why this eagle was in with the chickens. The farmer replied that the eagle was now a chicken because he had taught him to be a chicken and peck corn along with all the others. Thinking this was ridiculous, the naturalist took the eagle up a ladder and told it to spread its wings and fly away. The eagle jumped down into the coop and pecked corn with the other chickens. The naturalist was not to be discouraged. He took the eagle up to the top of the barn, told the eagle to spread its wings and fly away. But the same thing happened again. It just cannot be, thought the naturalist. He asked the farmer if he might take him to a high cliff and try again. The farmer laughed. You can try anything, but I tell you, the eagle has learned that it is a chicken. The naturalist took the eagle high on the cliff, told the eagle to spread its wings and fly away. The eagle looked to the sun, then spread its wings and soared over the valley. We can let others victimize us, even try to define us, but only when we look to the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, will we know and appreciate ourselves as we really are.
Number three, each person, each soul is of infinite and eternal worth and value. Actually, I love that other law, but these, uh, they keep becoming even more of a favorite. The Lord explicitly assures us of our value and our worth to him. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. For behold, your Redeemer suffered death in the flesh. Wherefore, he suffered the pain of all men, that all men might repent and come unto him. Jesus did not wait to see how we would live before he gave his life for us. The truth is that the worth of each unique life is divine, infinite, and cannot be taken away. The worth of the soul means worth of the whole soul, spirit and body. Our worth cannot be manipulated by others. It cannot be increased or decreased. I jump for joy upon discovering these words in uh, Elder Maxwell's wonderful book, Men and Women of Christ. This is one of the great but underappreciated blessings of the restored gospel. It richly assures us of our intrinsic value and of our eternal and ultimate worth. Because worth is an absolute aspect of life, it will always exist. Of course it is difficult to realize our worth to God if we are not living his commandments. Elder Maxwell also said, Besides, there is more individuality in those who are more holy. Sin, on the other hand, brings sameness. It shrinks us to addictive appetites and insubordinate impulses. A person may lose sight of his or her worth, but that person's worth is always great in the sight of God. A human life is always of utmost worth because that worth is eternal and cannot be erased. Isn't it great to know? Worthless is not an option. Number four, the influence of the Holy Ghost always produces joy and satisfaction. Long ago, George Q. Cannon gave this advice. I will tell you a rule by which you may know the Spirit of God from the spirit of evil. The Spirit of God always produces joy and satisfaction of mind. When you have that spirit, you are happy. When you have another spirit, you are not happy. The spirit of doubt is the spirit of the evil one. It produces uneasiness and other feelings that interfere with happiness and peace. President Benson said that most of us consider pride to be a sin of those on the top, such as the rich and learned, looking down at the rest of us. There is, however, a far more common ailment among us, and that is pride from the bottom looking up. This means that thinking negatively about ourselves is a form of pride. The natural man is an enemy to God and therefore full of pride. Putting off the natural man, in part, means putting off attitudes of self-deprecation, to stop putting ourselves down. I once heard integrity defined as not thinking or saying negative things about ourselves. How dependent are we on others for approval or worldly recognition to feel happiness? Here's a marvelous statement from the school sayings of Confucius. The orchid that grows in the deep gorges does not withhold its fragrance because of lack of appreciation. The wise person strives for establishment of virtue and maintenance of principles. He does not alter his integrity because of poverty and distress. If we do not fear people's judgment but instead yield to the enticing of the Spirit, 
we will find that the Holy Ghost does fill us with love and joy. Why do we look elsewhere for happiness? Number five, each person, each soul is always loved. John the Beloved taught us that God is love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We love him because he first loved us. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We do not initiate love. It is another absolute. It is already there. It is always there. How do we relate to God's love? We receive it, respond to it, are grateful for it. We love it. As Dennis Rasmussen has written in his provocative book, The Lord's Question, Thoughts on the Life of Response, only by responding do I learn to be responsible. Only by responding do I learn to care about something beyond myself. The response of obedience is the free response of love. Deep in every human heart is the desire to be known and loved just for oneself. God knows that self already. To guide but not to compel man toward his own true self, God asks his question. As man responds with love, he becomes the self that God knows and wants him to be. Scott Giles of BYU football fame gave permission for us to share in his perspective. As a youngster, he said, before one particular game, I turned to my mom and asked, Mom, will you love me even if we lose and I don't play very well? Scott, I love you no matter what happens. If you win or lose, I love you all the same. This brought peace to my heart and took the added pressure off of my shoulders. I knew then that my mother's love was not based on the things I did, but she loved me because of who I am. In my life, I have seen that many people wanted to be with me because of my successes with football, but their friendship and attitudes changed depending on how successful or unsuccessful I was. While serving an LDS mission, I learned that Heavenly Father loves all of his children. He looks upon the heart and soul. He does not weigh a person's worth by the way they dress or the things they have accomplished or attained. His love is an intrinsic part of the gift of life. Sometimes I do not achieve that which I had wanted to accomplish or do the things that I should do, but I like myself. I like who and what I am. I'm thankful for a Heavenly Father that loves me. He allows me to learn from my own choices, but still loves and values the things that are truly me. I think this is an especially moving account because I believe that the more talented you are, the more beautiful, the more money, the more difficult it is to realize that you are loved by Heavenly Father. Picture the mist of darkness in Lehi's dream that kept the people from finding and partaking of the fruit of the tree. Recognition and fame may cloud the true source of love. Also, looking to the Savior for love does not minimize excellence. Just the opposite happens. When you, know, when you know you are loved for you, you can learn from your mistakes rather than having your ego destroyed. Without the fear of failure or fear that you do not measure up, you are free to excel. You're not compelled, but you're free to give, to offer your best. Life becomes a process of giving rather than compulsive getting. Love and respect flow from Father through us to others. I'm greatly troubled when I read or hear that people think that's, that God's love is conditional, and I know there are people here that teach that, and it really does concern me. How could love be something we need to earn? 
This so diminishes the omniscience of our Savior, our Redeemer. I had this humor, actually it's kind of strange image, while contemplating the folly of thinking that God's love was conditional. There were these two angels that were assigned to help God, and one was the thumbs-up angel and the other the thumbs-down angel. And these angels were to observe our behaviors and then report them back to God. The thumbs-up angel would make a list of the names of those people who did good that day. And then the thumbs-down angel would make a list of the things that uh, weren't so good. You, you know, you hear people say, well, I hate myself, I gained 10 pounds, or, or that commandment is so hard to live, or how can I ever be seen in public with this hair? Well, each angel would complete his list and deliver the list to God and then say, these are the people you are not supposed to like today. These are the ones you can like today. Well, I thought that was kind of silly, but if that's the way God's love really worked, he surely would be kept busy by the lawyers. Well, that's, that's mean to hit you twice. God's love is unfeigned. His love is always perfect, always genuine. It certainly is not prone to manipulation. How absurd to think that we fashion God's love by our actions. As Trevor McKee has explained in his writing, feigned love seeks recognition and praise. Unfeigned love is charity. If God's love was conditional, then it would cease to be a gift. If the process were that of earning love, then the one earning the love would get the credit. Logic would tell us that this process is pride. We know that we are loved by way of the Holy Spirit. If we choose not to live by the Spirit but choose to live as the natural man, the less likely we are to want God's love or to receive God's love. For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. When we receive the gift, when we yield to the enticing of the Spirit, we are filled with love. Filled with His love, we love God. We lose our desire to do evil. And more than anything, we want to be like Him and be with Him. Once we are filled with His love, we cannot help but stand in awe of His love for us and be grateful for who we are. When we realize that each and every person is loved by Heavenly Father, it prompts us to love each and every person, too. Do you know you are loved? It is my most fervent prayer that you do know you are loved. And six, we are totally dependent on Jesus for eternal life. There is free lunch. In the October 1990 General Conference, President Hunter discussed the meaning of taking the Savior's yoke upon us. Why face life's burdens alone, or why face them with temporal support, that will quickly falter. To the heavy laden, it is Christ's yoke. It is the power and peace of standing side by side with a God that will provide the support, balance, and the strength to meet our challenges and endure our tasks here in the hard-pan field of mortality. The whole of what is real is based in the Savior. We are completely dependent on Him. The Lord will provide. We can give to the world and not expect or need anything back. Our real work is His work. Our real effort is simply to love Him and do His will. He is the one who will change our hearts. He is the one who will refine us. We don't need to be macho about life. We not only do not need to progress on our own, 
we surely cannot do it without him. Elder Oaks teaches, if justice is balanced, then mercy is counterbalanced. If justice is exactly what one deserves, then mercy is more benefit than one deserves. In its relationship to justice and mercy, the atonement is the means by which justice is served and mercy is extended. We are all dependent upon the mercy God the Father extended to all mankind through the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the central reality of the gospel. This is why we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. The reality of our total dependence upon Jesus Christ for the attainment of our goals of immortality and eternal life should dominate every teaching and every testimony and every action of every soul touched by the light of the restored gospel. If we teach every other subject and principle with perfection and fall short on this one, we have failed in our most important mission. According to Elder Maxwell, too often we behave as if we were in massive competition with others for God's love, but we have his love unconditionally and universally. It is our love of him that remains to be proven. I'm going to skip a, a number of quotes and just paraphrase because of time. I had a, a quote here from uh, a wonderful talk given by Stephen Robinson um, several years ago, and it was in the April Ensign. And in there, in his talk, he said, Many of us are trying to save ourselves, holding the atonement of Jesus Christ at arm's distance, and saying, when I've perfected myself, then I'll be worthy of the atonement. But that's like saying, I won't take the medicine until I'm well. I'll be worthy of it then. And then there was another talk I quoted by um, Robert L. Millett, who's here today. Um, and he, in, in a talk that he gave, the only sure foundation building on the rock of our Redeemer, he said that the fact is that Jesus came to live in us as we come to gain that life which is in Christ, a life which comes as we seek for and cultivate the Spirit of the Lord. We receive that en enabling power which extends to us the strength to forsake and overcome, a power which we could not have generated on our own. And in his richly meaningful book, The Broken Heart, the one I've been picking on here today, Bruce Hafen, he said, The atonement not only pays for our sins, it heals our wounds, the self-inflicted ones and those inflicted from sources beyond our control. The atonement also completes the process of our learning by perfecting our nature and making us whole. In this way, Christ's atonement makes us as he is, it is the ultimate source of our forgiveness, our perfection, and our peace of mind. Are you planning now to eventually be home with Jesus? He is planning on you. You assembled here today are commissioned to bless the world. And behold, ye the children of the prophets, and ye are of the house of Israel, and ye are of the covenant which the Father made with your fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. We have been blessed to know the truth and given the responsibility to take that truth to all the world. Of all people, it makes no sense for us to feel 
that we are not worthy of him and his love. It keeps us from him. More than anything, he wants us to walk with him every day. The adversary knows who you are and will continue to work doubly hard to deceive you, to keep you from fulfilling your covenant responsibilities, to make you miserable. How can we be a light to the world if we are trapped in the midst of darkness? How can we do Heavenly Father's will when we are obsessed with making a name for ourselves? Isaiah has prophesied that Israel will continually forsake the Lord, but the Lord will never forsake Israel. For can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee, O house of Israel. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Will we trust that we do belong to our Redeemer? Will we exercise the faith to see ourselves as the Lord sees us? We are of infinite value and worth to Jesus, just as we are right now. As we love him, have faith in him, and desire to be like him, he is the one who will change us, perfect us, and bring us home. Then he will give us all that he hath. How could we want for anything else? There's nothing greater than his love for us. It is my humblest prayer that we will know his love, we will accept his love into our lives, and realize our total dependence upon him. Then shall our confidence wax strong. Then shall we have true gratitude for who we are and marvel at his goodness to us. Then shall we know the amazing peace from him, even in this life, that peace which passeth all understanding. I know that Jesus lives. I love and adore my Redeemer. Jesus is the source of all that is real. He longs for each of us to know that we are precious in his sight. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.